section twenty one of the roman empire of the second century by william wolfe capes this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter eight the literary currents of the age part three few like fronto were content to shine only with the lustre of their art to live a sophist's life was a proverbial phrase for a career of sumptuous luxury to turn from rhetoric to philosophy was marked by outward changes like that to the monk's cowl from the pleasures of the world but it was in the greek cities of the empire that they paraded their magnificence with most assurance and ruled supreme over an admiring public among the brilliant towns of asia minor which were at this time at the climax of their wealth and splendour there flourished an art and literature of fashion to which the sophists gave the tone as authors and critics at smyrna above all the sanctuary of the muses and the metropolis of asia as it proudly styled itself the famous polemon lorded it without dispute deigning to prefer that city for his home above the neighbouring rivals for his favour when he went abroad the chariot which bore him was decked with silver trappings and followed by a long train of slaves and hounds so proud was his self-confidence that he was said to treat the municipalities as his inferiors and emperors and gods only as his equals smyrna the city of his choice profited largely by the reputation of its townsmen scholars flocked to it to hear his lectures jarring factions were abashed at his rebuke and forgot their quarrels in his eulogies of peace monarchs honoured him with their favours and lavished their bounty on his home hadrian even transferred his love from ephesus to smyrna and gave the orator a noble sum to beautify the queen of cities his self-esteem was fully equal to his great renown when he went to athens unlike the other speakers who began with panegyrics on the illustrious city he startled his hearers with the words you have the credit men of athens of being accomplished critics of good style i shall soon see if you deserve the praise a young aspirant of distinction came once to measure words with him and asked him to name a time for showing off his powers nothing loath he offered to speak off-hand and after hearing him the stranger slipped away by night to shun the confession of defeat when hadrian came to dedicate the stately works with which he had embellished athens the ceremony was not thought complete unless polemon was sent for to deliver a sort of public sermon on the opening of the temple when death came at last to carry him from the scene of his triumphs he said to the admirers who stood beside his bed see that my tomb is firmly closed upon me that the sun may not see me at last reduced to silence ephesus meantime which took the second place among the cities of ionia had brought favorinus from his native arles to honour it with his brilliant talents but neither of the great professors could brook a rival near his chair and a war of epigrams and angry words was carried on between them and was taken up with warmth by the partisans of each at pergamos aristocles was teaching still after giving up philosophy and scandalizing serious minds by taking to the theatre and other haunts of pleasure each even of the lesser towns had its own school of rhetoric and its own distinguished sophist nor could the intellectual society of athens fail to have its shining light in all this galaxy of luminous talents it had its university with chairs endowed by government and filled with teachers of distinction 
but it had also a greater centre of attraction in its own Herodes Atticus, who devoted his enormous wealth, his stores of learning, and his cultivated tastes to do honour to his birthplace and make her literary circles the admiration of the educated world. His father, who came of an old family at Athens, had found a treasure in his house so great that he feared to claim it till he was reassured by Nerva. He used it with lavish generosity, frequently keeping open house, and at his death nearly all the town was in his debt. No expense was spared in the education of his son, who studied under the first teachers of the day, and made such progress that he was taken to Pannonia as a youth, to display his powers of rhetoric before the emperor Hadrian. The young student's vanity was damped, however, by a signal failure, and he nearly drowned himself in the Danube in despair. Returning home in humbler mood, he gave himself once more to study. There and in Asia, where he served as an imperial commissioner, he amassed ample stores of learning and formed his style by intercourse with the greatest scholars of the day. After some years spent at Rome, he settled finally on his own estates and became henceforth the central figure of Athenian society, which was by general consent the most refined and cultivated of the age and the most free from the insolent parade of wealth. The most promising of the students of the university were soon attracted to his side, where they found a liberal welcome and unfailing encouragement and help. Aulus Gellius gives a pleasant picture of the studious retreat in which he entertained them. In our college life at Athens, Herodes Atticus often bid us come to him. In his country house of Caphysia we were sheltered from the burning heat of summer by the shade of the vast groves and the pleasant walks about the mansion whose cool sight and sparkling basins made the whole neighbourhood resound with splashing waters and the song of birds. Here at one time or another came most of the scholars who were to make a name in the great world, and who were glad to listen to the famous lecturer. A privileged few remained after the audience had dispersed, and were favoured with a course of special comments which were heard with rapt attention. Even the applause so usual in the sophists' lecture halls was then suspended. But if an orator of any eminence arrived at Athens and wished to say a word in public, Herodes came with his friends to do the honours of the day, to move the vote of thanks to the illustrious stranger, and to display all his practised skill in the tournament of rhetoric. Not indeed that the reception was so courteous always. One Philiger had the impudence to write an offensive letter to Herodes before he came to Athens. On his arrival, the theatre in which he had intended to declaim was crowded with the admirers of the Athenian teacher, who had malicious pleasure in detecting an old harangue which was passed off before them as a new one, and hissed the poor sophist off the stage when he tried vainly to recover credit. Nor did the talents of the orator save him always from a petty vanity. Aristides wished on one occasion to deliver the Pan-Athenaic speech, and to disarm the opposition of his rival whose jealousy he feared he submitted to his criticism the draft of a weak and colourless address but instead of this when the day came to deliver it the actual speech proved to be of far higher merit and herodes saw that he was duped one special object of his care was purity of diction not content with forming his style upon the best models of the past he was known even to consult upon nice points of language an old hermit who lived retired in the heart of Attica. He lives in the district, was his explanation, where the purest Attic always has been spoken, 
and where the old race has not been swept away by strangers we may find a curious illustration of his affectation of archaic forms in the fact that some of the inscriptions of his monuments were written in greek characters of a much earlier date which seemingly in the enthusiasm of the antiquarian he was desirous to revive a like spirit of reverence for the past is shown in his regard for the great religious centres of hellenic life not content with adorning athens like hadrian with stately works of art he left the tokens of his fond respect at delphi corinth and olympia where new temples and theatres rose at his expense there are few parts of greece indeed which had not cause to thank the magnificent patron of the arts whose taste inclined after the fashion of the day to the colossal and was turned only with regret from the idea of cutting a canal through the corinthian isthmus in spite of all his glory and his lavish outlay the athenians wearied of their benefactor or powerful enemies at least combined to crush him impeached before the governor of the province on charges of oppression he was sent to sirmium when marcus aurelius was busy with his marcomannic war faustina had been prejudiced against him the emperor's little son was taught to lisp a prayer for the athenians and the great orator broken down by bereavement and ingratitude refused to exert his eloquence in his own behalf and broke out even into bitter words as he abruptly left his sovereign's presence but no charges could be proved against him and the emperor was not the man to deal harshly with his old friend for a hasty word among the visitors at caphysia in the circle gathered around herodes probably was apuleius who had left carthage to carry on his studies in the lecture-rooms and libraries of athens philosopher and pietist poet romanticist and rhetorician he was an apt example of the many-sidedness of the sophistic training as it was then spread universally throughout the roman empire apuleius is a curious illustration of the social characteristics of the age combining as he does in his own person and expressing in his varied works most of the moral and religious tendencies which are singly found elsewhere in other writers of these times firstly there is no originality of thought or style in every work we trace the influence of greek models his celebrated novel of the transformation of a man into an ass is based upon a tale which is also found in lucian the stirring incidents of comedy or tragic pathos which are so strangely interspersed the description of the robber band the thrilling horrors of the magic art the licentious gallantries therein described are freely taken from the greek romances which he found ready in his hand in many of the countries where he travelled even the beautiful legend of cupid and psyche which lies embedded like a pure vein of gold in the coarser strata of his fiction is an allegoric fancy which belongs to a purer and a nobler mind than his the style indeed is more attractive than that of any of the few latin writers of his age for apuleius had a poet's fancy and could pass with ease from grave to gay but the author is overweighted by his learning and spoils the merit of his diction by ill-adapted archaisms and tawdry ornaments of pretentious rhetoric two in him as in the literature of the times there is none of the natural simplicity of perfect art but a constant striving for effect and a parade of ingenuity as if to challenge the applause of lecture-rooms in a society of mutual admiration one of his works consists of the choice passages 
the lively openings or touching perorations gleaned from a number of such public lectures to serve it may be as a sort of commonplace book for the beginner's use three as a religious philosopher he illustrates the eclectic spirit then so common from the theories of plato he accepted the faith in a supreme being and an immortal soul but instead of the types or ideas of the greek sage the unseen world was peopled by the fancy of apuleius with an infinite hierarchy of demon agencies going to and fro among the ways of men startling them with phantom shapes but making themselves at times the ministers of human will under the influence of magic arts and incantations four we find in him a curious blending of mocking insight and of mystic dread he vividly expresses in the pages of his novel the imposture and the license of the priestly charlatans who travel through the world making capital out of the timorous credulity of the devout yet except aristides no educated mind that we read of in that age was more intensely mastered by superstitious hopes and fears the mysteries of all the ancient creeds have a powerful attraction for his fancy he is eager to be admitted to the holy rites and to pass within the veil which hides the secrets from the eyes of the profane nothing can exceed the fervour of his enthusiastic sentiment when he speaks of the revelation of the spirit world disclosed in the sacred forms before his kindling fancy five finally in his case we have brought vividly before our minds the difference between devotion and morality the sensuality of heathendom is reflected for our study in many a lascivious and disgusting page of apuleius and though he speaks of the chastity and self-denial needed for the pious votary to draw near to the god whom he adores yet the abstinence must have been perfunctory indeed in one whose fancy could at times run riot in images so foul and lewd as to revolt every pure-minded reader we have seen that the scholars of the times were almost wholly living on the intellectual capital of former ages in rhetoric and history in religion and philosophy they were looking to the past for guidance and renewing the old jealousies of rival studies in the credulous and many-sided mind of apuleius all the literary currents flowed on peacefully together side by side but in lucian we may note the culture of the age breaking all the idols of its adoration and losing every trace of faith and earnestness and self-respect the great satirist of samosata was a syrian by birth though his genius and language were purely greek apprenticed early to a sculptor he soon laid down the carver's tools to devote himself to letters and making little progress at the bar of antioch took to the sophist's wandering life and like the others of his trade courted the applause of idle crowds by formal panegyrics on the parrot or the fly in middle life he grew weary of such frivolous pursuits and finding another literary vein more suited to his talents composed the many dialogues and essays in which all the forms of thought and faith and social fashion passed before us in a long procession each in turn to be stripped of its show of dignity and grace it was an easy matter to expose the follies of the legendary tales of early greece and many a writer had already tried to show that such artless imaginings of childlike fancy were hopelessly at war with all moral codes and earnest thought but it was left for lucian to deal with them in a tone of entire indifference without a trace of passion or excitement or spirit of avowed attack 
the gods and goddesses of old olympus come forward in his dialogues without the flowing draperies of poetic forms which half disguised the unloveliness of many a fancy they talk to each other of their vanities and passions simply and frankly without reserve or shame till the creations of a nation's childhood brought down from the realms of fairyland to the realities of common life seem utterly revolting in the nudities of homely prose nor had lucian more respect for the motley forms of eastern worship to which the public mind had lately turned in its strong need of something to adore he painted in his works the moods of credulous sentiment which sought for new sources of spiritual comfort in the glow and mystery and excitement of those exotic rites he described in lively terms the consternation of the deities of greece when they found their council chamber thronged by the grotesque brotherhood of unfamiliar shapes finding a voice at last in the protests of momus who came forward to resist their claims to equality with the immortals of olympus addis and Corybas and sabazius and the median mithras who does not know a word of greek and can make no answer when his health is drunk these are bad enough still they could be endured but that egyptian there swathed like a mummy with a dog's head on his shoulders what claim has he when he barks to be listened to as a god what means yon dappled bull of memphis with his oracles and train of priests i should be ashamed to tell of all the ibises apes and goats and thousand deities still more absurd with which the egyptians have deluged us i cannot understand my friends how you can bear to have them honoured as much as or more even than yourselves and jupiter how can you let them hang those ram's horns on your head momus is reminded that these are mysterious emblems which an ignorant outsider must not mock at and he readily admits that in those times only the initiated could distinguish between a monster and a god lucian's banter did not flow from any deeper source of faith in a religion purer than those bastard forms of idol worship he was entirely sceptical and unimpassioned and the unseen world was to his thoughts animated by no higher life nor might man look for anything beyond the grave his attacks upon the established faith were far from being carried on in the spirit of a philosophic propaganda he was unsparing in his mockery of the would-be sages who talked so grandly of the contempt for riches and for glory of following honour as their only guide of keeping anger within bounds and treating the great ones of the earth as equals and who yet must have a fee for every lesson and do homage to the rich they are greedy of filthy lucre more passionate than dogs more cowardly than hares more lascivious than asses more thievish than cats more quarrelsome than cocks he describes at length the indignities to which they are willing to submit as domestic moralists in the service of stingy and illiterate patrons or in the train of some fine lady who likes to show at times her cultivated tastes but degrades her spiritual adviser to the company of waiting-maids and insolent pages or even asks them to devote his care to the confinement of her favourite dog and to the litter soon to be expected one by one they pass before us in his pages the several types of militant philosophy the popular lecturer the court confessor the public missionary in cynic dress the would-be prophets and the wonder-mongers astrologers and charlatans all crowding to join the ranks of a profession where the only needful stock in trade was a staff a mantle and a wallet with ready impudence and a fluent tongue 
was lucian concerned for the good name of the earnest thinkers of old time the founders of the great schools of thought whose dogmas were parodied by these impostors not so indeed the old historic names appear before us in his auction scene but the paltry biddings made for each show how he underrated them and in his pictures of the realms of the departed spirits all the high professions of the famous moralists of greece did not raise them above an ignominious want of dignity and courage thus with mocking irony the scoffer rang out the funeral knell of the creeds and systems of the ancient world genius and heroism high faith and earnest thought seemed one by one to turn to dust and ashes under the solvent of his merciless wit religion was a mere syllabus of old wives fables or a creaking machinery of supernatural terrors philosophy was an airy unreality of metaphysic cobwebs enthusiasm was the disguise of knaves and badge of dupes life was an ignoble scramble uncheered by any rays of higher light and unredeemed by any faith or hope from a despairing self-contempt of section twenty one